Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 2, if you will. Genesis chapter 2. We continue our new series, Eucharist, Genesis chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 15 to 17. Now, I have it on the screen for us, and I tried harder this week to make sure that the font size and so on would be easier for us to read together. Um, so I'm going to, after you've turned there, and please do turn there and keep it open in front of you, even though we do have it on the screen. But let's read this together. Will you lift your voices with me? Isn't, isn't this wonderful that we are able to do uh, what Paul told us uh, we will be doing someday in a whole different dimension than what we're talking about here, but we are able to worship with unveiled faces. <laughs> Isn't that nice? And if you still want to veil your face, that's perfectly fine. I came in with a, a face covering on today, and we'll probably have it on again before our time's over. Um, so that's perfectly fine and optional and up to you. But it, it's so nice to be able to do so without, veil, with, without a veil on our face. Read together with me, will you? Then the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. I Last week we began, we kicked off this new series together by enjoying the story of Babette's Feast. If you were here, I want you to keep the images and the aroma and the characters of Babette's Feast in your mind. Let's let them remain with us as we drill down now into our study and exploration of the meaning and the significance of the Eucharist, of the Lord's table, the Last Supper, communion, these different terms that we give it. I'm using this term Eucharist because it most uh, fitly describes the meaning and significance behind this meal. It is a meal of thanksgiving. And that's what Eucharisto means, thanksgiving. And as we keep these images and these aromas of Babette's Feast in our minds, I believe they will serve to help our considerations together. Our faith, how many know this? Our faith involves so much more than merely logical acceptance. It encompasses our entire being. Our faith. Our mind. Our will. Our emotions. Our soul. And Babette's Feast has a way of just um, embracing all of that entirely. So as we engage the theology behind the Eucharist, let's keep the symbolic world of Denison's tasty story very much in our minds. I want to begin together with you this morning by exploring the theme of 
the sacred meal. Would you say that with me? The sacred meal. Say it again. The sacred meal. And I want us to begin looking at this in the Older Testament. And that's why we have this passage of Genesis opened in front of us. After all, it's table setting. The table setting of the Eucharist begins there in the Older Testament. The opening line of the book of Genesis tells us in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1 Why did God, who is perfect in every way, and who stands in need of nothing outside himself, why did he bother to create at all? God created the heavens and the earth not out of any sense of self-lack or loneliness or need to increase his own happiness, but of his own goodness and almighty power. That's why He created the heavens and the earth. Of His own goodness and almighty power. The ancient theologian and first century convert to Christianity, Dionysius, said that the good by its very nature is diffusive of itself. How many of you have one of those diffusers in your home? Some, a few have them. Where's Melinda Boy? I know Melinda's a big fan of these. The, you have one of those diffusers, and it diffuses uh, the fragrance of different oils or however it's designed and set up. Um, if you want some expert advice on that, see Melinda. She knows much more about them than I do. And there may be some other experts in the room as well. But Dionysius said that goodness... Is it, it's like the oil in that diffuser. It, 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 of its very nature, it is diffusive of itself, goodness is. Well, what exactly does he mean by that? Well, consider this. When you are in a good mood, how many are in a good mood this morning? Be honest. <laughs> when you're in a good mood... By its very nature, you don't hide yourself away. On the contrary, you tend to diffuse or effervesce this happiness, this joy, this goodness, communicating it, your joy, in one way or another. Others around you know when you're in a good mood. They probably know when you're in a bad mood, too. God is the supreme good. And hence, God is supremely diffusive of Himself. The intensity of His joy is such that it overflows into every dimension of creation. Now think about that for a minute. God is the 
ultimate supreme good. And he is diffusive of himself. And the intensity of his joy is such that it overflows into all creation. Isn't that a beautiful picture? We see the goodness and the joy and the love of God all around us. Now, let's take one more step. Love, in the theological sense, is not a feeling. Love is not a feeling or a sentiment, though it is often accompanied by those things, those emotional, psychological states. But it's not, that's not the essence of what love is. In its essence, love is an act of the will. And more precisely, it is the willing of the good of another. To love, then, is to put others before oneself and to really want what is good for someone else. And then to act on that desire. Many of us are kind and generous or just, but only so that someone else might return the favor and be kind and generous or just to us. This is indirect egotism rather than Love. Real love is an ecstatic act of leaping outside the narrow confines of my own needs and desires. And it is an embrace of the other's good. Another's good for, the, for their own sake. Love. Love is an escape from the black hole of the ego, which tends to draw everything around it into itself. We're seeing a vivid picture of that right there in what's going on in the Ukraine right now, and particularly with Vladimir Putin. Love is an escape from the black hole of the ego which tends to draw everything around it into itself. In light of this understanding then, we can now see that God's creation of the world is what? It's a supreme act of love. Why did God create? God who is self-fulfilling in Himself. He needs nothing. He's lacking in nothing. Why did He create? It's a supreme act of love for you and me, for the other. God, it is true, has no need of anything outside Himself. Therefore, the very existence of the universe is proof 
that it has been loved into being. That is to say, desired utterly for its own sake. Moreover, since God is the maker of heaven and earth, maker of heaven and earth, say that with me, will you? Maker of heaven and earth. That's biblical code for everything. Absolutely everything. He is the creator of everything. All created things must be connected to one another by the deepest bond because He is creator of them all. Because all creatures, from archangels to atoms, are coming forth here and now from the creative power of God. He holds all things together. All are related to each other through Him, the divine center. We are all, every one of us, whether we like it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, We are all siblings sharing being and existence together. Members of the same family of creation and sharing the same Father. That's why our hearts go out for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine, in Russia, in other parts of the world when such crises like we are seeing going on happens. We are siblings together, sharing the same Father. In the Middle Ages, St. Francis of Assisi expressed this idea in what is called the Canticle of Brother-Son. Speaking of Brother Sun and Sister Moon and Brother Fire and Sister Water, St. Francis understood this whole cohesion that we have with one another. This oneness that we have with one another and with God, our Creator and Father. And so, he very practically express that in his life as he would refer to all of God's creation. The sun, the moon, the birds, the squirrels. Brothers and sisters. Famously known for this song, this canticle of Brother Son. Now that for St. Francis was not simply charming poetry. That was exact metaphysics. Everything in the created order, even inanimate objects, everything, even the most distant cosmic force, even even realities that you or I cannot see, is brother and sister to me. in this understanding that God is Creator of all. We notice 
how the author of Genesis exalts in describing the wide variety of things that God creates, from the light itself to the earth and the sea, to all the trees and plants that grow from the ground, to those lowly beasts that crawl upon it. From ancient times, beloved, to this present day, the church has contended with a heresy known as a, a Gnostic heresy. And, 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 and what this Gnostic heresy was, which it was this belief that materiality is a, is a lowly or fallen reality, the product of a, a lesser God. But the book of Genesis and the Bible as a whole are fiercely against this. They are, they are the, the, the book of Genesis, the Scriptures as a whole, are fiercely anti-Gnostic. Fiercely against the belief that any material thing is just a lowly fallen aspect of reality. Similar to what we saw last week when we read Babette's Feast together and this dualism that they believed in, that God and spiritual things were separate and removed from the, 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 the natural things that we enjoy in this life. It's deeply anti-biblical, that belief. God created all things, and every good and perfect gift comes from Him. So as the culmination of creation, what do we see? God building and building and building in His creation. The one Creator God made all things. He pronounces all of them what? Good. You notice that as God creates, He pronounces it good. The light, the seas, the trees, all things. He pronounces them good and He declares the assemblage of creatures to be very good. So we can say that the universe, according to the Scriptures, again, has been loved into existence by a joyous God and is marked at every level and in every dimension by a coherence, a connectedness, a mutuality. Now make no mistake, we're not talking about pantheism here. What's that? Pantheism is the belief that, that, that those, those creations themselves are gods. We're not talking about that. We're recognizing that God is the Creator of all. And He has created all of these things. And He has pronounced them good. And because He has created all these things, there is a connectedness that they share together. And then as the culmination of creation, God made the first human beings. 
And so we are connected as well. All together with creation and to this divine center, our God. He created the first human beings and He gives them mastery over the earth. Look at Genesis 1, verse 28. I think we might have it on the screen here. Yeah, read this together with me, will you? Genesis 1, 28. Lift your voices. God blessed them, saying to them, Be fertile, fruitful, and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea and birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Now we've got to be careful to interpret this passage correctly. Aware of the numerous critiques that have emerged in the last century or so concerning the ecological indifference and a sort of human-centered chauvinism. The reign or the dominion that is spoken of here and in Genesis when God says, rule, govern over it, fill it, reign over the fish. When he's, when he's saying that to them, he's, he's, it has nothing to do with domination. And should definitely not be construed as a permission for human beings to take advantage of the world that God has created. Just the contrary, in fact. What God entrusts to our ancestors, Adam and Eve, might best be explained through the term stewardship. God is instructing them to be stewards. Be good stewards of everything that I have created. All that I have created and now give to you. And as I have created you as well, and am placing you in a position of governing power and ruling and reigning on my behalf over this creation, it is not about domination, but it's about stewardship and being good stewards of all that God has created and given. Are you seeing this? They are to care for creation. And if I can put it this way, they are to be advocating spokespersons for it. Appreciating its order with their illuminated minds and giving expression to its beauty with their well-trained tongues. This responsibility is nowhere better represented than in the Genesis account of Adam giving names to all the animals. That is to say, consciously designating the order and relationality of the created world. You see, Adam wasn't just trying to come up with clever handles for all of these creatures. It was more than that. He was naming them, but in naming them, he was, he was designating order 
and relationality of the created world with one another. Human beings were intended to be the means by which the whole earth would give praise to God, returning in love what God has given in love, uniting all things in a great act of worship. And this is why it's no accident that Adam is represented in the tradition of rabbinic interpretation as a priest. Jewish rabbis understand Adam as a priest. The one who affects union between God and creation. As he walks with Yahweh in the garden, in easy fellowship, in the cool of the day. Adam is humanity. And by extension, the whole of the cosmos, as it is meant to be, caught up in the rhythm and the rhyme, in the loop of grace and creaturely love, responding to divine love. This is Genesis 1. We're not in Genesis 3 yet where the fall happens, we often start our understanding from that point, Genesis 3. When really, rather than looking at original sin first, we need to look at the original glory that God created all of us with. And yes, the fall has happened. And we are in the redemptive journey of that now as God carries out His redeeming purposes to restore all things and to put all things to rights again. But this is before all of that happened. This was the intention and the heart of God. He creates as an incredibly joyous act of love. And then the culmination of His creation is humankind. Adam, Eve. He places them as stewards over all of this creation. And they serve in a priestly fashion, bringing unity and coherence between all of the cosmos and the Creator Himself. Now then, in light of all of this, because perhaps you're thinking, what in the world does this have to do with Eucharist, with, with this sacred meal? Well, what could be a better symbol of this entire theology of creation than the sacred meal? The banquet at which the Creator shares His life with His beloved grateful creatures. Indeed, Genesis tells us that God placed Adam and Eve in the midst of the garden of earthly delights and He gave them permission, as we read in our passage a moment ago, to eat from all the trees in the garden save one. He instructed them, in short, to participate in His life. How? Through the joy of eating and drinking. How many enjoy eating and drinking? 
Come on. We all enjoy it. Some of us more than others. The joy, it, we were meant to enjoy it. We were meant to enjoy the joy of eating and drinking. God, God set it up that way. So what, what greater picture could we have than this picture of this sacred meal? Participating in the life of God through the joy of eating and drinking. God establishes the garden with a great scope and freedom. Lots of room to roam with leisurely abandon. God sets the boundaries very broadly. He says, enjoy all of this. It's, it's all for you to steward and care for and enjoy and serve in a priestly fashion. It's all for you. This great loving act that I have carried out of creation is all for you. So he's given uh, lots of room to roam and leisurely abandon. And, and this is evocative of God's desire that his creatures, that you and I, flourish to the utmost. The church father Irenaeus commented, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. So why then does God give them this prohibition? Why is the tree of knowledge of good and evil forbidden to them? The foundational determination of good and evil remains necessarily the prerogative of God alone. Please hear this and listen closely. The foundational determination of good and evil remains necessarily the prerogative of God alone since God is Himself the ultimate good. He is the only one qualified to then determine good and evil. So to seize this knowledge, therefore, is to claim divinity for oneself. And this is one thing that a creature can never do. And thus should never try. You may remember in our recent series, Agape, this is what Paul was dealing with in the passages that we were looking at there in Romans and Corinthians where he said they worshipped the creature rather than the Creator. And they were grabbing, they were seeking to seize a sense of divinity and God-likeness for themselves. Rather than being aligned in a proper relationship with God Himself, and in so doing, know that glory of God properly, and as it was intended to be known. 
So this is what we're looking at here when God says to Adam and Eve, you can enjoy all of this, but don't touch this one tree of knowledge of good and evil. And to do so is to try to seize this knowledge and to claim divinity for oneself. And this is the one thing that a creature can never do and should never try because to do so is to place oneself. Life, existence, being, significance, knowledge. It's to place oneself in contradiction with God. Interrupting thereby the flow of God's grace and ruining the sacred banquet that we are to enjoy together with Him. Indeed, if we turn ourselves into God, then the link that ought to connect us through God to the rest of creation is lost. And we find ourselves alone. And this is what we see happen now in Genesis 3. Humanity disobeys. They succumb to the lies and the deception of the serpent, the adversary. They partake, they seize for themselves. This is the biblical reading, precisely as it happens. Beguiled by the serpent's suggestion that God is secretly jealous of His human creatures, Eve and Adam ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they seized for themselves at godliness, that they might not be dominated by God. And what happens? They found themselves, as a consequence, expelled from the place of joy, glory, and communion with Him. Moreover, as the conversation between God and His fallen creatures makes plain, this original sin entailed the connection between Adam and Eve and between humankind and the rest of creation. All of it is now fatally compromised. Man is hiding from God. Thinking they are, anyway. They're trying to hide. Not only are they hiding from God, they're hiding themselves from one another. What do they do? They sew leaves together to cover themselves. Suddenly, their nakedness, of which there was no shame, of which spoke of a complete transparency and openness and, and, and intimacy with one another in a way that we can't even comprehend. It was not just mere nudity in the garden. That, that's, it had nothing to do with that at all. It spoke of an openness and an intimacy and a transparency and a oneness and a connectedness that man was intended to know with one another. Completely. 
Well, what are they doing now? They're hiding themselves from one another. And there is a disconnect that happens between them and all of this creation that God had created for them to enjoy. And so this sacred meal, this fellowship, this, this banquet that they are to know with one another and with Him has broken down. The man replied to God in Genesis 3, verses 12 and 13. It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and that's why I ate it. So we see this chain of events of disconnects that happen between the woman and the man, between humankind and creation, between all of this and God. There is a hiding, an aloofness, a distancing, an effort to cover up and clothe oneself due to shame. And this complex symbolic narrative that we see in Genesis, this story as it plays out, is meant to explain to us the nature of sin as it plays itself out across the ages and even now in this day that we live in. God wants us, beloved, to eat and drink in open and intimate communion with Him and our fellow creatures. But our own fear and our own shame and insecurity and pride break up the party. God wants us gathered around Him in gratitude and love, but our resistance results in scattering and in division and in disunity and in isolation and violence and recrimination. Do you know one thing that the Ukraine is so beautifully showing us right now? They are giving a gift to the world. Do you know what that is? Standing together. Being unified together. Say what you want about democracy. And, 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 and democracy is a wonderful thing. I don't believe democracy is going to save the world. But democracy is a wonderful thing. And the Ukraine is showing us what democracy can really look like. This fledgling democratic nation is showing us. Those who have walked in democracy for years. Although a very broken down and disfigured and perverted democracy now in so many ways, corrupt, but yet they are showing, they're giving the world a gift of what it can mean, what it can look like to stand together, united, even if it is united unto death. Better to be united unto death than to be divided by conspiracies and divided by false narratives and lies and everything else that we see you know, coming out of Russia during all of this. That even the Russians themselves are shaking their heads and thinking, something's not right here. God desires the sacred meal with us. With the world. 
with his creation. But we want to eat alone and on our own terms. Even so, even so, the God of the Bible is relentless in his love. He is so relentless in his love. He will not rest until this situation is rectified and set right and remedied. And the whole of the scriptural story, though contained in a wide variety of texts written at different times in different contexts for different purposes from Genesis through to Revelation, all of it can be seen as a coherent narrative of God's attempt to redeem and restore His fallen creation. To reestablish the joy of the banquet. The sacred meal. And much of the Bible, beloved, is the account of that. God's redemptive rescue operation for His sad and compromised creation. That's the story, the love story of the Bible. The choosing of Abraham. The exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt. The giving of the law on Sinai. The victories of David and Solomon. The sending of the prophets. The setting up of the temple. All are moments in the love story of divine liberation. And in the Christian reading of this story, the rescue operation culminates in Jesus. Jesus, who recapitulates and sums up the sacred history that preceded Him. He is the one to whom Abraham looked. He is the final freedom from the slavery of sin. He is the embodiment and the fulfillment of the new law. He is the true successor of David and Solomon. He is the final teller of divine truth. His body is the new temple. This entire epic saga is the story of God's loving, yearning desire to walk once again in intimate friendship with Adam and Adam's race. You and me. To sit down once again with humankind and the whole of His creation at a great festive banquet. A great sacred meal. God likes eating and drinking. And that's what we see right from the very beginning in the book of Genesis. And that's what we'll consider to continue to consider together in these days and the meaning and the significance of it all.